New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Sim van der Rijn has been a leading proponent of the green building movement even before it was known as that. And for more than a half a century, he has been leading the way for a more regenerative, resilient, and sustainable future. It is his hope that society will increasingly acknowledge the critical value to our health and well-being through a direct connection to nature, and that designing in collaboration with nature will become a major tool toward creating a vital new architecture for an empathic world. Sim van der Rijn is an architect, author, and educator. He's the president of the Ecological Design Collaborative and has for over 40 years been at the forefront of integrating ecological principles into the built environment, creating multi-scale solutions driven by nature's intelligence. He served as California's first energy-conscious state architect and is Emeritus Professor of Architecture and Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of many books, including The Integral Urban House, Self-Reliant Living in the City, Sustainable Communities, Ecological Design, the 10th Anniversary Edition, The Toilet Papers, Recycling Waste and Conserving Water, Culture, Architecture, and Nature, an Ecological Design Retrospective, and Design for an Empathic World, Reconnecting to People, Nature, and Self. Join us for the next hour as we explore the shifting paradigm of architecture and design and how that is affecting the health of individuals and the planet with our guest, Sim van der Rijn. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sim, welcome to New Dimensions. Thank you. I'd like to begin. Let's talk about your early childhood or why it's important for children maybe to be connected with nature. You speak about this a bit. Well, might as well, if you're going to be connected to the living world, might as well start early. I think, you know, nature deficit disorder, I mean, that's a condition that's now that... Uh, actually becomes a psychological condition. I've experienced it with Berkeley students in their 20s who, when 
I'd have them come out to my place in Inverness where we were out in the forest and the ocean. And they could see they were fearful. Uh, they you know, just had never been in a forest <laughs> or in a natural environment. So I think that kind of experience needs to start, you know, very, very early. And I think in early childhood, you can relate, you know, I think we're designed as humans. I mean, uh, the enlightenment was, okay, humans are above and separate from nature. But all, but our design is really that we are part of nature. So the, the architecture of the inner self tells us that if we paid attention to it. How is architecture part of the problem? It's part of the problem, I think, because part of it has to do with the nature of architectural education as it's developed. Formal education in architecture only started about 200 years ago in France and in Germany through the polytechnics and the Ecole de Beaux-Arts <laughs> in Paris. And that was basically a product of the Industrial Revolution itself. And the Industrial Revolution was... Uh, as I've put it and other people have put it, was basically disassembling the organic world and assembling a mechanical world. And then that got reflected in architecture at the beginning. That's how you were trained, as in you, to do engineering. You know, engineering architects would create these incredible objects uh, called architecture rather than uh, places that were really grounded in a place. And in, in these schools, as they developed, you, the, the, it became a, what you call a competitive uh, design studio, so to speak. There's a lot of pressure on, on form and on uh, competition. Well, I call it the, the Ayn Rand model of architectural education. And, uh, I remember in high school reading The Fountainhead and even then just being disgusted with it. It really was the Ayn Rand model that um, you're a genius and wake up screaming in the middle of the night with this great idea and then just find a victim <laughs> to, to perpetrate it on. And yet it's so... Mm, Ridiculous, because the one thing you cannot learn to be through formal education is a genius. You either are or you aren't. So it was a very false model where they put students in competition with each other. You worked by yourself. Actually, when I was going to architecture school, I would not, you know, my fellow students would stay up all night. I'm not staying up all night. <laughs> and as a professor for years, I always told students, you know, spend your time in the studio, in the studio, work in the studio, we'll work collaboratively, I'll look at your work, and don't go up and stay up, stay up all night and turn this into a cult, which is what it becomes in many places. It's, it's rather sad, and, the mo and for the most part, the schools are pretty much stuck in that place. There, there, there are some breakthroughs. I mean, change is happening, but very slowly. <laughs> now, you have something called the integrative design model. So what, how, do you, how would you describe your model of training young architects? Well, the first place is, I mean, as I try to point out in the book and, as, and put into practice or 
had institutions really bring our group in to do it is uh, if you go through 16 years of formal education and then you're, uh, you've already graduated college, because now, now architecture is a three-year graduate program, that's way too late. It needs to start in preschool. And actually, as an experiment, um, uh, San Domenico School, which is a private school started by the Dominican Order in, in San Anselmo, California, um, they brought me in to develop a program that went from preschool through high school. And I would give the third or fourth graders the same kinds of projects as I gave mm, freshmen or sophomores in architecture, and they could do just as well. Uh, and so then, what, what, what would you give them? What, what would be a project? Well, a project would be here, you know, here's your campus. Uh, you can get these little devices at the time called, uh, I forget what the name was, but they could give you readouts of how much sun and uh, shade and sun was in any spot. So I'd have them analyze, you know, just do this analysis of the buildings through the days to see what the sun pattern was, you know, which is another thing. I mean, I, I admire the, you know, the modern, modernist architects in the you know early with Walter Gropius uh, and the whole Bauhaus people who, they wanted to do away with the, you know, the crusted Prussian architecture, you know, the, the Baroque architecture and have these clean modern boxes. But they tend to ignore and they all this new technology of glass and steel and so forth. That's fine. But they made the same mistake of basically kind of ignoring <laughs> the environment they were building in. What I'm saying is the education needs design as a large concept as part of our world needs to be incorporated into the education system very, you know, very early. I mean, Waldorf schools do some of that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about as children, we build things all the time. Exactly. We, we, we put pillows together or we get some big box and we make a little fort exactly. out of it. Exactly. And that's what, uh, and I would use my architecture classes. I, in This is in Berkeley in the 60s. You know, I'd find teachers that were kind of sick and tired of, you know, classrooms with desks facing forward, bolted to the floor. And there's kids sitting and, you know, spending hours and they just can't <laughs> And so uh, um, I would let the schools know, you know, we would like to help you and work with the kids to redesign the classrooms. And there's a woman called Emily Pilliton, a Berkeley graduate, who's really taken that even a step further, starting in rural school districts in Kentucky, where they've redesigned their classrooms, they've rebuilt them. The towns that she's working in flooded. They, re they basically did a lot of the building. So to me, that's another thing. Architecture, to me, you cannot rigidly separate the, you know, white collar uh, architecture from the blue collar construction, which is another thing that happens in the schools. There's very little collaboration. Oh, well, those are just uh, automaton goons. They don't know anything. Right. And which is most often not true. When uh, going back to your early days in Berkeley, you were there when they had the People's Park <laughs> movement, and um, this was uh, a 
a you point out a a true collaborative design, which some that you point out is a precursor to the Occupy movement. So say something about that that early collaboration in People's Park. Well, I would call it more we call it participative design and. And, you know, starting as a young professor at Berkeley in 1961, I mean, the thing about the 60s was, uh, well, Eisenhower had warned us, uh, beware of the military-industrial corporate complex. <laughs> uh, and so our motto really was distrust authority. So, you know, administrations say, well, we're going to do this new thing. We're going to do this thing, this thing. And you say, yeah, well, why? Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? Who's involved in doing it? Well, that's none of your business. You're just a, you know, you're just a, you just work here. Shut up. <laughs> um, and but anyhow, and actually I was involved in that, in the, the, I was head of a committee after my first book, which was a study of dormitories. Their the administration idea was, what we need student housing what we love hotels so let's build 10 story buildings and put students in them and there'll be two students to a room there'll be gang toilets at the end there'll be these long hallways and they built two complexes of those four each very expensive we're going to talk about more about that in just one moment i'm here with sim vanderine and he's the author of design for an empathic world and also culture architecture and nature and if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to the website vanderine.com. And he spells his name Vanderine, V-A-N-D-E-R-R-Y-N, Vanderine. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Sim Vanderine, and he's the author of Design for an Empathic World and also Culture, Architecture, and Nature. And Sim, we're talking about the, the design. Uh, you're in Berkeley, early 60s. There's dormitory designs and long hallways and two people to a room, and you were just describing that, and you redesigned something else, didn't you, or well, we didn't redesign it. We see. You see, uh, I think I wrote a. I didn't write, but I presented a paper at the early AIA Schools of Architecture seminar in 1963, and I said, "If architecture, we say it's an art and a science. Well, I kind of understand what the art 
part is, but where's the science? Well, how does science operate? Science has a hypothesis. You put it out there and you test it. Okay, well, the hypothesis that the administration had about these dormitories is hotels, the the design of a hotel would be a great place for, stu <laughs> for students to, to live for four years. And, but they didn't, so that's a hypothesis or I'm making it up. I don't, that, that was kind of their hypothesis, but it's never tested. They never question they, it. They, they never question it. And uh, because they'd be questioning themselves. <laughs> and, um, but my early work was testing, we call it a little clumsy word, post-occupancy evaluation. That's, the, that's testing the hypotheses. And and um, so that's finding getting feedback once well, people yeah. are living there and they're saying, okay, how do you like it? Well, we'd ask them. We um, did a lot of observation. We actually took uh, movies, probably movies. I think we had video then. Um, we had question. We had interviews, and yeah, I produced the monograph, uh, I, which the Ford Foundation funded. Uh, my title for the book was The Ecology of Student Housing. And they said, no, <laughs> no one knows what ecology is. That's a stupid title. So oh. it was called Dorms at Berkeley and Environmental Analysis. Oh, gosh. And that did change the model in a lot of places because what we did, we took their people's suggestions. And, of course, what they wanted, I mean, actually, these high-rise towers were expensive to build. And you could build three-story, you know, units with three or four separate bedrooms and, you know, shared kitchen and office space. So, and that actually, the book that we did to present the results and provide, and provide um, what we got, the other models that people told us, this is really what we're looking for. That did have, at that time, had an impact on, yes. on what student was. Well, I know it was. did in my first college days. I was in an older dorm, which was like the first one you described. But there was a newer dorm that was like that, that had shared kitchen mm -hmm. for about mm -hmm. four rooms or something like that. And it was wonderful. I was very jealous of those people who lived there. Let's go back to People's Park and that collaboration and or or participatory design and how that. Well, it was pretty. You know, it was pretty wild, and <laughs> it was it was wonderful. I mean, it was a spring day, uh, and here had been this land that the university had cleared. I had been chairman of the committee. It was the only advisory committee. Had no real power. And the vice chancellor come to us and said, we're going to tear down four blocks near Telegraph Avenue. Just sign off on it. And we said, what are you going to do with it? Uh, oh, well, I think it's going to be medical school or something. <laughs> and, and I went into all the regents, you know, uh, notes. And there was no budget to do any of that stuff. So, uh, and I still don't know why they wanted to do it. Then it sat vacant for three two or three years, people started parking on it. It was all rutted and a total mess. And then in the spring, um, there's a landscape architect friend of mine and a contractor and some students and, and people in the community said, hey, you know, let's build a park on this. You know, they've been letting this sit there. It's just, uh, let's create a park. So they just started doing that. Uh, people donated shovels and other materials. And, uh, you know, it was kind of an amazing process. And my research seminar, 
the same kind of research seminar in which I'd studied the, the dormitories, we started, you know, spending a lot of time seeing what this process was. And it was, you know, very chaotic. I mean, as I say in one of the books, uh, they say, hey, you know, let's dig a pond. It'd be great to have a water element here. So they start, everybody would <laughs> be under shovels, turning all the dirt on. And I'm so, well, wait a minute, what happens uh, if kid falls into it? You know, oh, well, maybe. <laughs> so it was. So there was a lot of trial and error. There was, yeah, it was a lot of trial and error. Hundreds, but it drew in hundreds of students, people, neighbors, people in the community. And, um, then, of course, our, uh, our new governor, Ronald Reagan, said, this is anarchy and communism, and it's going to it better stop and told the chancellor, you know, get this to stop, put a fence around it immediately, or I'm going to call out the, my, the National Guard and the heli- <laughs> and their, <it's> helicopters, <laughs> which well, he did. he did, and my late partner, Michael Toms, was on Shattuck Avenue when ah. that happened, and he, he ducked in to, to, to get away from the tear gas, uh, Shambhala Books, which was very new at that, uh, a new mm. bookstore there. And uh, that, so he was right there during that time. It was, uh, uh, had repercussions. And, and, and I think, as you alluded, that it really was a precursor to now a little more elegant style called Occupy Movement. Which is not easy when you're collaborating. So it's much easier to just give a dogmatic, you know, instruction. Mm-hmm. This is the way it's going to be. But that kind of collaborative is is more difficult, wouldn't you say? Or at least takes more time or energy or what is it? Oh, I think all of those things. Um, for people really to listen to each other. Um, you need you and you need you need pretty skilled leadership, um, and uh, and you, yeah, you you need you need models for cooperation, collaboration. Um, I mean, actually, it's interesting <clears throat> because I mean, as I <clears throat> say later in the book, in terms of our future, I think it has to it, it's going to be localized. So communities are really going to have to be able to people that don't agree about things and what to do is to really talk to each other. That's what I've been doing in my home community. I started West Marin Community Conversations about six years ago because we had very divisive issues and neighbors wouldn't talk to each other. And I said, you know, in a small town like this, if we cannot communicate with each other in a civil way, we're really, <laughs> we're really in a mess. You know, that and, reminds me of of an art project that happened in West County. Um, <clears throat> I call it West County. This is Northern California in Sonoma. It was uh, Christos. Yeah. And he did this fence across yeah. all these borders. And he brought farmers in mm-hmm. and brought... Mm-hmm. So there's where art really instilled a kind of sense of that kind of dialogue. Yeah, that that's a very good example. Actually, the governor sent me down to report back to him on on Christo's fence when I was uh, up in Sacramento. And it was, yeah, I I think it it was a very interesting example of a different kind of collaboration. He had a particular model, but because of where he was, people did get in, you know, were incorporated into the world. They all got involved. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean, what's the difference between sustainability 
and regenerative. I mean, if you're like sustainable architect to regenerative architect. Well, I did do a book, I will admit. I wrote a book in 1985 with my then partner, Peter Calthorpe, who's become a very uh, well-known urban planner in the world, um, called Sustainable Communities. And actually, I looked in the dictionary for the was my random house on a on a bridge dictionary did not have the word in there. <laughs> so, I mean, I think what it meant was that we can create something that is in balance with people and in and nature, and so therefore it's, it's just, it can last. But um, I think the way it's well. I think if you think about it, it, oh, well, if we just, you know, if we just put some solar on the roof and have a Prius, we'll be sustainable. But in the world that we live in right now, um, that is not going to, is no longer going to be, is no longer sustainable um, in terms of, oh, we can just get through this. So I prefer the words resiliency. Which, because resiliency does have a meaning people understand. It means you bounce back from hard times. You bounce back from disappointments. You bounce back from unexpected events. Our drought right. <laughs> would be a good example. Um, so I don't, and then the words basically become a marketing term because it's completely non-transparency. There's no transparency in those words. And at, and at this point, frankly, green... Um, I feel the same way about green. It's not transparent. I mean, for example, as I talk about in the book and in our interviews with the people who were worried about health effects of building materials and so on, the U.S. Green Building Council, I mean, the, chem they, the chemical companies will not share any data with them. They are starting to push a little bit on this issue, but, you know, we have... Tons of buildings that are technically green, but they're, they could also be unhealthy or, or energy-efficient buildings they're, that are unhealthy. And, and you talk about them as real closed environments. They're very tight. And so you, you, that, that the toxicity within the inside of the building might be, and pollution may be, more than what is on the outside. I, I remember years ago there was an advertising campaign by DuPont, and it said, uh, better life through chemistry. Well, exactly. And I quote uh, Laporte, um, uh, who's a leading biologist in this field, and said, you know, well, what it is is we just adopted the better living by chemistry motto, and this is how we build our, you know, build our buildings. And, um, yeah, so that's... <laughs> and, you know, there's so many people are having real health problems. They're overly sensitive to any odors or you can't wear perfumes anyplace and you've got to be careful of your deodorants and everything because you're going to affect so many lives. It's way up on the scale now. And maybe this is because of all of that toxicity that we're exposed to. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the chemical industry just operates like the industrial food industry, you know. <laughs> they, they, they don't, you know, they, whatever they, whatever they can get through the <laughs> FDA. What, uh, right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one reason 
I think learning to grow some of your own food, not only is it, an, uh, I find it an incredible, rich ex- personal experience, but <laughs> it also tastes better and is be healthier for you. I'm here with Sim Vanderine, and he's the author of Design for an Empathic World, Reconnecting to People, Nature, and Self. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, vanderine.com. And Vanderine is spelled V-A-N-D-E-R-R-Y-N, vanderine.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Sim Vanderine, and he's an architect, and he's the author of Design for an Empathic World, and also Culture, Architecture, and Nature, an Ecological Design Retrospective. And um, I'd like to talk about the five principles of eco-design, if you Mm -hmm. can recall those. You mentioned them in your book. So one is, the first one is no the unique qualities of mm. the place. What does that mean? Yeah, I think the way we word it is solutions start with place. Um, I know many architects uh, get a project. Oh, I'll just look at the maps and the photographs. I don't need to go look at the place. I don't have time. And to me, that's so counter to what we should be doing. What I do is I start a new project and I spend a day on the site just mm, taking it in, feeling it. <laughs> and you do watercolors and I do, it. And, I'll do water, and I do watercolors, which I generally give to the client afterwards. But basically What, what that, do the watercolors do for you? What, what is for you that's a particular special endeavor? Well, and I also taught it for many years at Berkeley. You know, they used to teach watercolor back in the Beaux-Arts days and they did these incredible renderings of, you know, buildings in the early 20th century. So everyone, they knew they had to learn how to watercolor. That all went away way before computers. And in the 80s, they said, why don't you teach your watercolor class again? Not only to architects, but also our landscape, the rest of the college environmental design. So I did, and I've done it. I painted since high school, but for me, I just call it, it was my meditation. And the watercolors are are more than just an accurate representation, like visual representation. It, it, it gives a kind of spiritual flavor, for lack of a better word, of the place. Yeah, so for me... Well, and I would tell students, what we're doing is the difference between looking, which is something you do as an outsider seeing something, and now an outsider staring at the screen on his, on his iPhone <laughs> at point race. You know? um, 
it's the difference between looking where you're outside of what of the place and seeing which means that you're experiencing it at multiple levels um in your body in your mind and all your senses are engaged and actually my rule in work in the watercolor classes is we'd get to a place at 10 and we leave at four. And my only rule was no talking. Don't and talk to each other. Don't talk to me. I'm painting. And we'll look at the work at four o'clock and talk a little while before we leave. And that's an interesting thing, too. You ask your students to, for that silence. And you ask them to find a special place or find or to wander around. And what? what, what? Well, I've done that, too. Yes. Well, I borrowed it from uh, Castaneda. Yeah. I've done that in places like Ojai, where I was doing a project for the Ojai Foundation, where we were going to create a whole new school on site. And there were, were around 60 residents involved. And this is a very large site. And I, and I said, you know, after breakfast, go and find a place that really feels like the place for you. But no talking to each other. And then spent the whole morning doing that. And then we looked to where everyone was, and that gave us where the site was. So there's something that, like another kind of intelligence. Exactly, it's an other, it's an other intelligence. So we're talking about the five principles of oh. eco design. So well, the, first the first one, one is was place. The, the place. The second one uh, is something about tracing the cost. Of, of a design to the living systems, is it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was like, well, what is, you know, what is the cost to, to nature of what it is we're going to do? And how can we diminish the, the damage and, um, to the natural world? I mean, now my friends, Hunter Lovins and um, Paul Hawken, you know, they wrote the book on natural capital, which says, you know, we have to account for natural capital in, in retrospect, I think it's a it's a bad framing <laughs> word because it basically implies that all of nature can be monetized. Monetized. Hunter has changed the name of her company. It's no longer called Natural Capital. It's called Natural Capital Solutions, or that she's changed the name slightly. Um, but I think an example of this might be like a. The Rouge River plant in uh, Detroit, the Ford River plant, where they've planted a, a field on top of it. So now the migratory birds are landing once again on their route, their migratory route, and nesting and having, you know. Well, I think the reality is, I mean, I wrote, we wrote that in uh, the 90s, middle 90s, and when we're just trying to say, hey, you know, there's a price to be paid by the living world of, of anything we do. But actually, the accounting systems that we have to do that just aren't really there. And I don't even think we should. And, I, and you know, many of these places like Ecuador, they're just revolting around the whole idea. You know, like, no, you can't just monetize everything. Uh, how do we, how can you monetize life? So I still stand by the principle, but I think it, it was a little naive. The third principle is design with nature, which is, <laughs> which, and then we've, we've had wonderful books, uh, 
uh, like biomimicry. Uh, so it's yeah. like using, watching, knowing nature and how it is regenerative and how it's working. Well, also, I think biomimicry is largely about taking things in nature and actually figuring out how to make, um, in many cases, mechanical systems out of them. For example, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, world that's happening there. For example, they They've analyzed these desert beetles that have some special way in even the driest areas of collecting waters, and they've taken, they've analyzed those principles, and now they're actually b building places where it's it's using that model. Don't ask me about the, right. the details of the technology. Or let's say a spider web, which seems very fragile, but it has a high exactly. Tensile. Well, well, it has yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, designing with nature, well, that's that's kind of across the board. It's a very broad concept. Uh, another guest on New Dimensions is Bill McDonough, an uh -huh. architect, and uh, we've done uh, quite a few interviews with him. And, and he talks about making a building like a tree, thinking of it like a tree mm -hmm. with all mm -hmm. the different, like, to, like, that it it harvests its own energy and waste systems and and it breathes in a way you talk about the skin of the earth and what it does and maybe changing the skin of a building to actually mimic the skin of the earth well i put it more simply uh is buildings are not objects they're organisms they're and uh they're ecosystems and yeah, and Bill's using the analogy of a tree, but we could use any living system as an as as uh, as an analogy, um, and that is really important. Um, the the people who are doing the most in this, uh, who I think is a true crusader, is Jason McLennan, who created the uh, Living Building Challenge. And you know, I was just up in Seattle on part of this book tour, and went to the Bullet Building. Uh, where they had to change all the codes in Seattle because it's zero water, zero energy, zero waste. Whoa. Literally, you know, I, I they used to call me Captain Compost because I was obsessed with why do we take one pre one reusable resource, our own human waste, dilute it with, it, with, with another really <laughs> key resource, potable water, and dilute the third, rivers, lakes, and oceans with it and there they have the five-story building has composting privies oh that's fantastic and but they had to get the the governmental uh mm. unit to to redo the legalization for all of that well, redo they, the codes yeah they had to redo the codes and and you know now, and and there there are obvious building and safety codes, but you know that we ought to be looking to the future. Our codes really need to be designed about climate chaos and global warming. Right. Well, I remember years ago Bucky Fuller talking about that. I mean, he was adamant about it about the way we flush our toilets and all we use. Well, he was one of my mentors. Oh, <laughs> it's not surprising that I I remember Bucky describing a building, and I don't know if he's ever whole environment it was like like going to be a huge building like a donut where the inside of the donut was all tiered so you could see the sky from every unit and you could see across <laughs> and then the bottom of it 
the on the ground floor of it would be a park, and it was just this. I've, I've always remembered that design. I don't know if anybody's put it into use, but but it's thinking in that way that puts us in touch with nature, that we're not like isolated within four walls. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's say we've we've covered. Know your unique unique mm-hmm. quality mm-hmm. of place. One, trace the cost to living systems. We're talking about five principles of eco design. Mimic nature's process. The fourth one is honor every voice. Yeah, that's the collaborative. That that's an integrative process where um, it's not siloed. You know, like. Okay, the architecture is responsible for the design. Then you hand the plans to the structural engineer. He's responsible for doing the structure. Then you handle the mechanical engineer. He's responsible for doing the mechanical systems. And, oh, the users, oh, well, we don't need them. Don't. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, it's the principle is really everyone is a designer. Uh, look, And uh, they need to be integrated into the design process from the beginning I mean, it's what 40 years ago we'd call what we were doing over the transom design. You know, you design, okay, <laughs> don't even, you know, no communication instruction here, just dump the drawings in his office. You figure out how to build and, this. And, and right, and, and sometimes, like, things just don't work out. I mean, the way it's designed, it's not going to, it's not, uh, joints are not going to match or something. Um, yeah, so that... It's so obvious, but I mean that requires a whole rethinking of um, you know of what architecture is. It's and a whole community, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's a whole, and it is happening some places. I mean, the the most recent example I've seen, and I mentioned it in the book, is is Google, for example, right? Where they have high value. They could. They are. They value their employees, and also their data. What are? What's their business? Data collection. Yeah. So let's, they, let's talk about Google in just one moment. I'm here with Sim Vanderine, and he's the author of Design for an Empathic World. And if you'd like to know more about his work, go to his website vanderine.com. That's V A N D E R. R-Y-N, vanderine.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Sim Vanderine, and he spells his name S-I-M, last name Vanderine, 
V-A-N-D-E-R-R-Y-N. That last name is three separate words. Sim, let's talk about um, Google. You just mentioned them and, and how they are integrating their users, the people who work there. They're mm-hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. them, and they're thinking about how mm-hmm. they can have these uh, what do they call collisions? Uh, mm, I call them mm. incidental contacts. Is what I call it. But what say something about Google? Well, I haven't observed it myself. I've only been re- been reading about it. But they, yeah, they're really they have people studying. I mean, the same things I've talked about earlier: studying how their environments work and how they can be improved and and uh, redesigned. I think yeah, one thing is cross communication between people. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of, um, uh, what was it, Dobert's, you know, the cubicle world. I mean, I can remember, I was interviewed by Cisco some years back, was going to build a whole new huge project uh, office in in, uh, south of San Jose. And I started talking about natural light and the, the Vice president was in. He said, "No, our employees don't want any natural light." (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Well, in that case, I'm sorry. I I can't. I'm not interested in your project." So (laughs) why why is natural light something good uh, as far as a work environment? Well, there have been studies. I mean, we did studies in the '60s, and uh, not so much myself, but some of my colleagues, for example, in hospitals, discovered. You, know, you took hospitals where recovering patients were not able to see trees, grass, sunlight. Uh, you know, it was, just, it was just a mechanical box. And ones that were, were able to see, um, see nature outside and their recovery was much more rapid. So, again, it's, we're designed to live in... <laughs> Nature. We're yeah, not nature. designed to live in cubicles. That just reminds me. You speaking about hospitals. Uh, the the Monterey Hospital in Monterey. I don't know if you've ever been to it, but it's a kind of place that my aunt used to live down there, and we would go there for lunch because it was so beautiful. And what they did, they did a huge koi pond right in the middle of this atrium, and they would wheel those patients who had non-communicable diseases, I mean, people with broken legs and other things like that, they would be sitting, their beds would be around, you know, they're around the pond. They could come for a little couple of hours to sit by the pond, and then we would be eating in tables on another side of the pond. It was just beautiful, very hospitable, uh, beautiful space. Mm-hmm. And so this is really what you're talking about is that that you're thinking of bringing nature, uh, making it available to us, more porous yeah. to nature. Um, well, as I, as I write, I mean, what I started to do, I think in a very conscious way, particularly in the, in the well, in the 80s and the 90s was, Whatever we were designing to try and create a story about the the basic elements of you know of sun, of soil, of uh, water, of air, and of space, 
And the the, uh, the example I generally give about that is the Solar Living Center up in Hopland, uh, that, which is the flagship store of uh, right real goods of, of real goods uh, trading company. Right, and Michael they, and I lived up there uh, for quite a few years, oh, so we're you know. very we we saw it go up. But yeah. Well, we built in. You know, if you look at the if you can follow the plan of how the water moves around the whole site. Uh, from an old redwood, uh, reclaimed redwood tank with solar panels and then pumps it through a channel, a uh, flow form channel, which is the kids' playground. And then uh, it goes into, the, into a spiral in the center in front of the store, which is basically a very ancient cooling system given it's hot there in summer. It's shaded with trees. And that building never goes... Uh, that's been monitored. It's just been this, the subject of about 10 PhD <laughs> theses. And well, exactly. it, it's between 65 and 75 all year round with no mechanical heating system or cooling system. It's amazing because those of us who have lived there know it gets hotter than blazes in the summertime there. They have no air conditioning, but the, with the natural arbors and then the, the, they use the, the leaves from the, the arbors that are growing. I mean, it just... It just—I'm just amazed. And then at there's that. the sun story, if you and, and which we've measured at noon. And there are a series of prisms right in the entrance, and so you know it's noon when those prisms are right through the front doors. <laughs> and then the prisms move throughout the store all day, um, and uh, they also can correlate that with merchandise sales too. <laughs> Isn't um, that amazing? So it's there's a, a very sun open environment yeah. too. There's a sun story. There's uh, and then uh, their water, their a, toilets are of course. Well, the toilets, yeah. The the um, <laughs> I said, why don't we? Uh, and well, number one, we were going to tile. You know, the, we thought we'd tile the to, to, the uh, uh, the bathrooms, and I said. I had a, a law passed when I was in state government that uh, uh, toilets in California after 1978 had to be no more than two gallon flush rather than five or seven gallons. And so the wrecking yards were full of all these old toilet covers. And that's what we tiled the bath. I mean, the ceramics guy thought it was a little nuts, but he loved doing it when he was finished. And then, yes, we don't have flush urinals in that building. Because now we have, that was in the, in the 90s. Now, actually, we have no flush urinals uh, that uh, are not just collecting the, uh, I'm actually not sure quite what the technology is, but I've been in many buildings where right. there are no flush. Right. But we'd collect the urine and that would go into the gardens um, uh, Do you there. see that we're we're moving more towards that, or are we we're still in the dark ages when it comes to that kind of water conservation, and especially now? I mean, in 2014, we're we're talking about a major major drought in California. Well, we had the last major one like this. We've had was in 75, 76, and. Um, and no, have we changed our habits? No. Um, yeah, I mean, law. I mean, California has become more, is one of the most energy efficient states because of the the regulations I get passed, 
after we designed the major first state office, new state office building, and I showed them we could reduce energy consumption 85%. So this is something due to you when you, back in the 70s, were, you were state architect. I mean, you started to bring this up early on with the first uh, oh, yeah. governorship well, of uh, Jerry Brown. Oh, well, that's why I took the job. You know, I had created, uh, here in Sonoma County, created the Farallons Institute, which is now Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, to try and integrate, you know, solar building, food production, water conservation, a community. And, um, you know, I had turned in all the building plans and the master plan to Sonoma County. They... I waited a year, never heard from them. And then we just, I sent the letter and said, you never heard from you. We're just starting to build. And we're going to start this project. I had, we'd, we were full up with students. And then they showed up with 18 county cars. <laughs> and I, at the end of the day, 200 red tags I got for various violations. You, you, no, you're an organized camp. You have to show you can provide 200 gallons of water per day for, per person. I'm saying, no, we're going to show we can do it 15 gallons, including the, our farm and garden. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the governor, he uh, picked up on that and he said, you know, we need people like you in Sacramento, not, <laughs> not bureaucrats. Right. Yeah. So it was a very lucky uh, time. And then, yeah, my major focus was creating examples that show we could go way further through those five principles and common sense and uh, than, than the standard at the time. Well, you know, uh, also with, with this, we're, we're really talking about, you're really talking about ecological architecture as, as a real dynamic adaptation with nature, with community, with place, with, with lots of things. So hmm. we might end on that if you can say something about that. Well, I think you've said it. Yeah. <laughs> that you cannot take what architects do is in, and you can put it in some separate box. It needs to be integrated with all these other elements. And it's not... You know, it's not easy to do um, because you have clients um, and you, we have the regulations. I think the regulations, uh, in many cases, the planning codes and the building codes really need to be revised. You know, it's, it's a larger picture of how our institutions work. Uh, and the dis, you know, I think at this point, there's no argument that we have dysfunction. Uh, at just about every level of go of government, and so I think it start, needs to start in community by people starting to, particularly as things get harder, which I think they will. Um, if we work together, we can create resilient, uh, regenerative communities. May it be so, Sam. I want to thank you for being with us on New Dimensions. I've been speaking with Sam Vanderein, and he's the author of Design for an Empathic World, Reconnecting to People, Nature, and Self, and also Culture, Architecture, and Nature, an Ecological Design Retrospective. And if you'd like to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, vanderein.com. That's spelled V-A-N-D-E-R-R-Y-N. Vanderine.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3495. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.